What I share today is applicable to changing as a father. Maybe uh, you were a bad father. Maybe you have been a bad father. Uh, maybe you're not the best father. But it's not primarily a Father's Day message. It's about change, the necessity for change. You know, uh, one of the things that I had to learn, you know, I, I, I was raised, I, I tried to become an atheist, uh, but I had too many seeds from Sunday school in my heart. But I was, I was a champion of all the rebels. And, um, you know, I hated conservatism. I just thought that was the biggest bunch of nonsense. And then eventually I became a conservative. <laughs> and, but something happened to me after that. Not everything about conservatism is good. And I, I can't call myself a true conservative. And here's the thing that I mean by that. The weakness, the, the, the weakness of conservatism is resistance to all change. There's so much about conservatism that, uh, like a conservative Christian, uh, we, we want to hold on to the truth of the message. That will never change. But so many times we want to hold on to the methodology and everything else that we heard it in. And that doesn't have to change. Actually, missions in certain respects, missions from America to Africa and missions from Europe to Africa, we not only exported the gospel, we exported suits and ties. Uh, we exported things that have nothing to do with Africa or other nations. And we exported only certain contexts, you know. And so uh, I, I am really more probably conservative than liberal, but there are some liberal things in me. I'm a very liberal giver, but I'm more liberal in other things too. But that's neither here nor there. But we all need to learn to change. Change is a part of life that uh, if we're not changing, we're not growing. If we plant a tree today and we come back next year and that tree has not changed a bit, then that tree has not grown so there has to be change. The strength of conservatism, and this is where I think a lot of liberal-mindedness misses it, is that there are rock-solid, inviolable things that will never change. There are foundational things that we must hold on to. Anything that's absolute, you have to hold on to it. So that's, my, that, that's not really a political perspective. It's just true about everything in life. And uh, moving to the next one, Today we're going to get a camel through the eye of a needle. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe it can happen, here's a picture to prove it. There you go. <laughs> I had to look a little while to find that online, but it was there. Getting a camel through the eye of a needle. And really that's about change. And I've heard a lot of things about that particular passage. Actually, Paul taught this passage last week, Matthew 19. And he skipped over that. He didn't skip over it. He just did not deal with it. And I'm not faulting him at all because his message was something else. Uh, but I, I want to just share with you something that has helped me tremendously. Uh, in Matthew 19, verses 23 through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 24, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, and this is really very important to understand, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible. Now just hold that right there. If you recall from last Sunday... The context here is the rich young ruler, the rich young man who trusted riches. So Jesus is not so much talking about people who have a bunch of stuff as much as he's talking about people who a lot of stuff has them. They're possessed, as it were, by their possessions. God is not opposed to riches or people being rich. The problem is greed. Trusting riches. Now in these verses, the eye of a needle is not and never has been a small door in the wall of a Jewish city. This does not exist in Jewish history. That's been taught a lot, but it's not found anywhere in Jewish history. It's not talking about a small door in the wall of a city. As a matter of fact, these uh, individuals, Caninius, Clark, Barnes, Gill, and Robertson, they all say this. This was a mode of expression common among the Jews, and it signified a thing impossible. And then Vincent says this, In the Middle East, the use of a large animal passing through the eye of a needle was always an expression about impossibilities. It was not an expression about difficulties. But remember again, the key here is what's impossible with man is possible with God. So we're talking about a camel going through the eye of a needle. Let's look at the next slide. The key to gaining understanding, as I said, is Jesus is speaking of things impossible in the human realm, but possible in God's realm. You can leave that there. So I ask you, can a real camel pass through the eye of a literal needle? I mean, we got a, let's say we got a big camel here, and we got a tiny little needle. Can we get that big camel through the eye of that needle? Okay. Sure, next slide. But he'll be a camel like you've never seen before. The camel must go through a fundamental change of composition, such as turning the camel to liquid and passing it through the eye of the needle one drop at a time. That way, a camel could get through the eye of a needle. Impossible with us, possible with God. Leave that there and say, can rich people enter the kingdom of God? Yes, they can, but not in their present form. They must have a fundamental heart change where money and possessions are concerned. There has to be a transformation take place. And so Jesus here is talking about transformation. The rich man who trusted riches, he wasn't blocking him out of the kingdom because of his riches. I know a lot of people that are rich, and actually everybody in this room is rich compared to the majority of the people in the Congo where we're going in about a month. And I mean, it's amazing what poverty really looks like in the abject sense. So Jesus is not excluding rich people. He's talking about people because of heart affections that prevent them from serving God. And I'll be honest with you. 
It's possible for every one of us, because of heart affections, to not serve God in the fullest sense the way He intends. It's possible for me to do that. Nobody gets a free pass in that sense. In other words, I've got to be willing to deal with the issues of my heart that are preventing me from going on in the fullness of what God has for me. Their heart set on riches must become a heart set on God. And our hearts set on whatever else that's contrary to God's ways or even God's best, uh, that has to change to a heart fully set on God. Now, just leave that right there. Can we continue on in God's purpose no matter what? Can we progress to the fullest in God's purpose? Yes, we can, but not without change. Many changes throughout our lives. A willingness to change. A willingness to, I've, I've always done it this way. And you know, this is really kind of what we face in, quote, Christianity uh, in the church. You know, uh, Nita and I were raised Southern Baptist. And I remember every Sunday, I was, I was a sinner, but I really was hungry for God. I love the Bible. I, you know, we, we memorize Bible verses and all of that, but I'd never received Jesus. But I'm telling you, at noon, excuse me, at 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock every Sunday morning as I was sitting there on the front row of the balcony, I think my body could have done it by itself. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Every church service started with that song called the doxology. It just was automatic. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happened in the course of time, a beautiful song, and the truth of it is really great, what had substance became ritual, and we just did it rotely. Uh, the hymns and all of that. Hymns are great, by the way. I love a lot of the hymns. But I'm saying we were raised a certain way, and church had to be through by noon. Started at 11, had to be through by noon. If not, the deacons were all over the pastor. We had deacon-possessed churches. And um, so I'm just saying that, you know, there were issues that, you know, that hindered us from really progressing in the things of the kingdom of God. And so... Uh, we come in here with something called NCMI. We don't worship NCMI. Uh, we, we found NCMI to be what we believe is a better way. It may not even be the best way. One thing I love about, we're going to the Equip in Los Angeles. So we fly out there tomorrow. And tomorrow too. Tomorrow and tomorrow. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so the thing that, I love is that there's hardly any mention of NCMI at the equips, at the conferences. It's not worse. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and getting Jesus to people and getting people equipped and, and planted in, in the things of God. And so we do things differently. One, one thing, we, we're not personality oriented. In other words, we don't believe in personality led churches. There's no question who the leader is, but Paul is magnanimous. He gives as much away as he possibly can. And I'll tell you, Paul's desire is that there be so many, such a pool of good preachers, that it matters not whether he's here 
or somewhere else raising up other things. And, and, and that, to me, that's healthy because personality-driven churches hinder the advancement of the kingdom of God because no matter how you do those things, ultimately what you've got is you've got a spectator, I mean, you've got a, a performer or two and everybody else being spectators. And God wants to release all of us into our God-given abilities and giftings and functions. Now, how do we change? How do we change? Well, let me give you some basics about it. And yet, ultimately, all of us have got to come to grips with it. My wife has been trying to get me to change for, we've been married 43 years, 43 years. I got it right. 43, is that right? Yeah. But, you know, she had to realize something. Of course, I've been doing the same with her. It's not her job to change me. It's not my job to change her. But God can change all of us as we learn how to walk together. Okay? So how do we change? 1 Peter 1.23. It all starts at the new birth. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed. A seed that's corruptible, it can become tainted and, 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 and dead eventually. Corruption leads to death. We've been born again, not of a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, it's very interesting. This verse, the word word, is not a reference to this. Don't stone me. The word word is not a reference to this. Let me remind you of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. It says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That doesn't mean that a Bible came from heaven and manifested here. No, the Word in John 1 and the Word here is talking about a person called Jesus, the Word of God. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, His name was God, the Word. And so we are born again of an incorruptible seed, the incorruptible seed of Christ. Born again through the seed of Christ. Born again through the seed of the Word. At the new birth, Christ, the Word, in seed form, is planted in us, his seed. The seed of Christ. I'm impregnated with the life of God through the seed of Christ, and so are you. Leave it there. Physical formation. Let me talk a minute about this. From conception, when my father's seed and my mother's egg came together, in that first cell, my DNA was set. Rodney had come in seed form. DNA is interesting. My daddy had flat feet. I've got flat feet. John David has flat feet. Now, where this thing's going to end, nobody knows. So DNA is interesting. But the second that dad's seed and mom's egg came together, my DNA is set. That's natural formation. Let's look at Galatians 4.19. 
my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Christ in us in seed form in 1 Peter 1.23, Galatians 4.19, Paul is writing to Christians. And he's saying, I'm in intercession for you until Christ is formed in us. Maturity is really about Jesus becoming in us who he is through us, through our personality, through those things that he's gifted us with. The next slide, Christ formed in us his spiritual formation. Every born-again believer, brand-new baby Christian, Christ is in them in seed form. And God's plan is every one of them be a functioning, mature member of the body Christ, gifted and functioning according to the capacities that God has put within them. That's God's plan. Spiritual formation, at the new birth, Christ the Word in seed form, that is His seed, makes us spiritually alive. I mean, the moment you're born again, you're spiritually alive, and you're you're as much a member of the body of Christ as anybody. All He is to be in and through us is present in us in seed form. Jesus wants to manifest through us. You know, uh, a verse that we love, Christ in us, the hope of glory. What that means, the word glory sometimes in the scripture is a reference to the heavenly realms. And so when it says Christ in us, the word hope means expectation. Christ in us, Christ living in people in seed form and then growing is the hope the expectation of all of the heavenly realms. In other words, this is what all of heaven has been waiting for. This was Paul's revelation that Christ would be in Jew and Gentile making up one spiritual body. It was what we have is what the world needs. That's why the Great Commission is of such significance. Because it's, it's not new political parties. It's not new uh, political systems. It's Christ alive in people. That's what sets the captives free. That's what brings oneness and unity in the earth. All he is to be in and through us is present in us in seed form. Spiritual formation is allowing Christ to become, come in us who he is and to live his life through us. That's the way God planned it. That my maturity is tied to my yieldedness to the living Christ on the inside of us. Let me just say this. That's why if we allow this book, I love it. I don't think it's got errors in it. But God never intended that this book replace an intimate living relationship with the living word, the Lord Jesus. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus told them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And yet because of your posture towards the written word, you won't come to the living word and have life. This is to enhance our relationship with the Lord. The first century church had none of these. And yet the first century church turned the world upside down. We have millions of these. 
And yet the church today in, all, in so many places is being turned upside down by the world. What's the difference? We may know the book of God, but they knew the, book, uh, they knew the God of the book. And the purpose of the book of God is to enhance our relationship with the God of the book. To bring us into that place where, yes, this is such a help. We have a benefit that they did not have. But that book is not to replace the relationship with the living, living God who lives on the inside of me and the person of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. Now, leave the slide there. Example, Jesus on the cross, totally innocent, said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. That's amazing. And yet that's what God expects of us. Jesus could have said, my father's going to get you for this. I'm totally innocent. My father's going to get you. But you know, it was not in him to say that. Well, God wants us to grow to where it's not in us to retaliate. First Peter chapter 2 makes that clear. We're called not to retaliate. As our spiritual formation is taking shape, the right things, the godly things, the otherwise impossible things are easier to do. It's natural to do. In other words, naturally supernatural to do those things that are godly, right, and otherwise impossible. That's what it means about Jesus talks to us about things that are possible, impossible with man or possible with God. So can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Absolutely. But he's got to be transformed. Can I do what God wants me to do? Yes, but I've got to be transformed. And the transformation continues. And this is the fruit of discipleship. The fruit of discipleship is that I can come to the place. I can come to the place that I respond scripturally, biblically. Bless those who curse you. Love your enemies. And some people say, yeah, but we can love them from a distance. No, the Bible says love your enemies and do good for them. Serve your enemies. Heap coals of fire. And we love to say heap coals of fire, but that's not what Paul intended. We serve them and, and they feel guilty and ultimately they want to come to this wonderful God because we treat them in ways that we should not treat them according to their standards. Discipleship. What is discipleship? I'm learning from him and through mentors, how to live my life in the kingdom of God as he would live my life if he were me. And that's the key, letting Jesus live my life by me yielding to him. Let me say that again. Discipleship is this, I'm learning from him and through mentors how to live my life in the kingdom of God as he would live my life if he were me. In other words, letting Jesus you know, we have all sorts of cliches, and a lot of them are great if we'll let him become life, to let Jesus live his life through us. Life in the kingdom of God, three things. Loving God. Next slide. Loving God, life in the kingdom of God. Loving God, which is intimacy. Loving those who love God, which is community. And loving those who don't know him, which is mission. That, that's the three phases of life, or the three arms, the three fingers of life in the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, 
and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. Now this is Jesus. He borrows Simon's boat. And this is before, this is before Simon. Actually, this is the longer version of what happened in Matthew 4 when Jesus walked up to him and said, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Why did he do that? Well, amplification. You speak across the water and multitudes can hear you. It's an amplification system. They didn't have PA systems. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. And then verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus the carpenter is telling Peter the professional fisherman how to fish. Well, Peter could have said, hold on a minute. I'm the fisherman, you're the carpenter. I know these waters. We've been fishing all night. We've not caught anything. I've toiled all day and all night, caught nothing, so I'm not going to do what you say. But thank God Peter did not say that. Verse 5 says, Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Now that is so significant. Peter was not a sports fisherman. This was his livelihood. He knew waters and they didn't have sounding devices. He knew waters. He knew where the fish were. He said, I know these waters, but in spite of the fact I've toiled all night, because you say to cast out your net, I'm going to do that. We have toiled all night and caught nothing. That's what Peter knew. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. This is the way to what he didn't know. Think about that a minute. What do you know? Well, that the Lord would have trouble getting through to you to do something contrary to what you know. This is what's happening here. What has the Lord spoken to you that you allowed what you know to prevent you from doing what he said? Selah. <laughs> what has the Lord spoken to us that we've allowed what we know to prevent us from doing what he said? Leave that there. When we do this, we confine ourselves to the realm of what we know and prevent the word of the Lord from accomplishing one of the prime reasons it comes to us. Why does the word of the Lord come to us? Why do we even gather on Sunday or any time we gather? Why, why are we here? Are we here just to feel good about being in church on Sunday? No, there's, there's reasons why the word of the Lord comes to us. If you'll put the next slide up, the word of the Lord comes to us, number one, to move us to a place that we are not to move us to a place we don't know and to a place beyond ourselves. And, and, and this is not the mind of a conservative. And, and it's not the mind of a liberal. But it's the mind of the person of the kingdom. This is one of his chief ways of changing us. Changing, changing doesn't come just by sitting and listening. 
Changing comes by doing what you hear. Getting involved with what the word of the Lord is. You know, I was reading uh, Twitter last night and Tim Keller said this. Find somebody you don't love and just act like you do. Just treat them like you love them and eventually you'll start loving them. It's in the action that changes play, that, that change takes place. You, you can come here all the time and never miss a word I say or Paul says or whoever and that by itself doesn't change you. It's the action that changes us. In verse 6, when they had done this, when Peter had said, cast the net on the other side, they caught a great number of fish. Their net was breaking. That's a lot of fish. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. A lot of fish. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He was so convicted. This is, this is so far beyond anything they had ever seen happen. If he had allowed what he knew to prevent him from obeying the Lord, then he would never have known this. And there's so many places like this in the Scripture. Verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And then verse 10, the, the, the B part of 10. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Acts 2, what happened? Peter was anointed to preach the first message after the Holy Spirit was poured out, and he caught 3,000 men. He said, Don't be afraid. From now on you're going to be catching men. God watches over his word. Then verse 11, so when they had brought their boats to land, this is awesome. When they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. One of the other gospels said that they left their boats and their father and pursued all. Now God loves fathers. God loves families. But I'm telling you, obedience to God many times runs cross families. And I've seen this. I have seen people compromise, 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 compromise through the years of disobedience to God in order to retain family and they never get their family. And I've seen people obey God, love their families, but obey God and keep obeying God, keep loving the family, obey God, keep loving the family. And over time, the hearts of their families are turned. That's why Jesus said later in this passage that Paul dealt with so beautifully last week, there's no one who has left father or mother or brother or sister or children or lands or possessions for my sake and the gospel. I will return a hundred times more. I, and, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not blowing our horn but back in 2009, we just decided there was no way that we could keep doing in Africa what we do and have a place to stay in America. So we gave it up. And God gave us places to stay for 10 years in Africa, and we never had to pay one cent for it. 
God honors His Word. And see, here's the issue. They forsook all and followed Him. To forsake means to no longer let it control your heart. It doesn't mean you have to give up everything. Even the rich young ruler, we have to understand, Jesus didn't say, sell everything you have and give everything to the poor. He didn't say that. He said, sell all you have and give to the poor. He didn't say give everything. He said sell everything and then give out of what you sold to the poor. Maybe the rich young ruler heard him say, sell it all, give it all. But he didn't say that. He said sell everything you have and give out of what you sold to the poor. So a forsaking, getting it out of your heart. The title of this teaching is The Necessity for Change. Why do we have such resistance to change? We prize greatly, hear this, we prize greatly the status quo because we've learned to manage things. You don't have this slide, so anyway. We prize greatly the status quo because we have learned to manage things as they are and we don't want to change. We take what has been handed down to us and protect it and manage it until we become irrelevant. And sadly, that's what's happened in many places as far as church is concerned. Church has become irrelevant. And we gauge our, our strength, and we gauge our validity, and whether or not God's really working amongst us by what happens on Sunday morning. And there are churches that are full. Thank God they're full. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. But a church's validity is not necessarily based on what happens on Sunday morning. God expects that what, whatever happens on Sunday morning, no matter how great, that there be more happen out there through the week through our lives. That's God's plan. It's beyond Sunday morning. Change requires transition from the old, what we know, to the new, what we don't know. We cannot afford to be transition challenged. Let me, the great example in the scripture for being transition challenged. Can anybody, um, yeah, you just leave that there a second. Can anybody tell me the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Can anybody tell me the second shortest verse in the Bible? Well, I'm going to show you the second shortest verse in the Bible. When I get there, if we hold on to the past, we'll be transition challenged. Here it is, verse 32 of Luke 17. Remember Lot's wife. That's the second shortest verse of the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Can anybody tell me about Lot's wife? She turned to salt. That's change, but boy, it's not a good change. <laughs> okay. She was transition challenged. What was the command? Don't look back. And you know, one of the, one of the biggest hindrances we have is we want to look back. We have more love for what we've known, and it's more safe in a natural way, but it's not real safe. So God had told, uh, you know, God was judging Sodom and Gomorrah, and God delivered Salt and his family. He said, but don't you look back. Whoever looks back is going to be turned to a pillar of salt. And she looked back, and verse 33 said, whoever seeks to save his life. In her turning back, she was trying to save her life with all the perversity and all the other stuff. And actually, there's, there's things about Sodom we don't like to talk about. 
As a matter of fact, Ezekiel tells us the sins of Sodom. First was pride. This is the list. Pride. Second, overabundance of food. Third, prosperities and idleness. Fourth, they did not strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And five, they were haughty. Haughty is pride on steroids. And because of those things, they committed abominable idolatry. In other words, we, we just want to say one thing when we think of Sodom, that God lists five before that one thing we talk about. So there were comforts in Sodom. And the comforts, if we, if we just get so used to them, it's, it's not wrong to be comfortable, but when we demand comfort at the place of obedience, and that's exactly what Lot's wife was doing. then what happens is, is that we love the comfort so much we'll be willing to put up with all the other stuff that's so ungodly. Yeah, I said we can, if, if we're not careful, we can get so used to all the comforts and demand them that we, we become blind to all the other ungodly things that are around us in that context. Remember Lot's wife. She was transition challenged. She was seeking to save her life. What she knew. This is why Jesus says it's really a problem if you're trying to save your life because you're just trying to save what you know. She could not let go of the past, so she became a monument to it. If we individually or corporately hold on to the past and the ways of the past, we'll become a monument to it. I'll never forget, I was a new Christian. And I, 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 had, I was raised in this Baptist church, and I got saved, so I went right back to it. And I met my lovely wife at the pastor's house. But before we were married, we had, a, we had an awesome youth minister. Her name was Sandy Morgan. And she did an amazing uh, uh, drama one Sunday morning. The pastor, let her, the pastor let her have the service, and boy, the deacons got the pastor. I mean, it was bad news. And the, the, name of the, the name of the sermon was Stone Congregation. Not stoned like that, but stone. And so she had several of the actors planted. It was a big church. And all these were planted on the aisles. And so, you know, one person had, you know, was just sitting very rigid like a statue. And, and so she described him of what his life was like. But then... He was so happy with the way life was, he just began to ignore what God was saying to him. And then there was one person that was t covered with powder, you know, and, and just dusty, had become such a dusty relic, as it were. And there were all sorts of things like that. It had a very poignant, got to my heart. And so it was a, it was a great, great, great drama. And so that's what we have to face. If we individually or corporately hold on to the past and the ways of the past, we'll become a monument to the past. And that's not what God has called us to. I mean, there's fear in the natural. There's uh, uncertainty in following Jesus. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but this physical body quakes sometimes in obeying the Lord. 
I remember the first time we went to Mozambique in, in 1984. Mozambique, of if there's 185 nations in the world, Mozambique was at the bottom. I mean, it was horrible. It was a communist nation, real communist nation. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was just amazing how unsavory it was to be there. And we were there less than 36 hours, and I was possessed with one thought. Get me out of here. I mean, in 1984, I was a spoiled prosperity preacher. And so, you know, it, it just, it did a work in my heart. And then over time, God just kept putting us in difficult places. And then in 1989, we moved to Africa. And just 19 days after moving to Africa, I was given an assignment that was totally outside of my job description. But the crusade manager for the evangelist I was working with had come down with malaria. And so I was the only person on the team, the only other person who had ministry experience. And so he asked me to go live in Namibia for five weeks. Namibia is the nation northwest of South Africa. And I mean, it, it was, it was mind-boggling. <laughs> and then I found out I had to live with an African family. And what happened in those five weeks was God exposed racism that was in me that I was totally blind to. But I'll be honest, my greatest concern when I found out I was going to be living with an African family and eating at their table is what am I going to eat? And five weeks later, I'd gained 11 pounds. <laughs> this lady had been a, a chef for all of her life in, in South Africa for years. So that was my Africanization because previously... I had a short jaunt into a place, but for five weeks, this was my job. And so it broke down all of those things. And so if we just want to hold on to what's comfortable with us, maybe comfortable the way we do church, comfortable with whatever it is that we want to be comfortable with. And once again, I say comfort's not wrong, but we can't hold on to it instead of obedience. Then ultimately, we're just going to be like that stone congregation. But God has much more for us. Let him put you through the eye of a needle. Let him change your composition. And it begins with a heart change. And what happens is, I've discovered this, is the more we take steps in obedience to places that seem difficult, like when we first went to the Congo, it was really challenging. But now we almost, I call it Congo energy. When I get a week before I go to the Congo, there's an energy that comes because of what all we do there and just we love the Congolese people. And so that had to start somewhere. And so whatever it is God is after you to do, don't resist. Just do it. Be as wise as Nike. Just do it. Let's close our eyes and let's just let this sink in. Oh, Lord, you're so good. You're so good that you don't leave us to ourselves. You don't leave us in our comforts. You desire so much beyond. But to get there, there's uncomfortable things we must go through. I want you to respond with your heart, not with your hand, but with your heart. If you really, really want to you know, I, I, let me just, you can keep your eyes closed, but just let me tell you this. There's not nirvana. There's not that place we come to where everything just glitters. It's just not there. But I'll tell you what there is. 
It was a place of inward satisfaction and peace because of God. It's very interesting if we look at the fourth chapter of, 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 of Philippians. He starts out by saying, don't, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. And as you commit these things to God and release them, then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So he starts with the peace of God. But then he comes down and he says, whatever things are good, whatever things are honest, etc., etc., think on these things. And then he says that the things you've heard of me and seen in me, these things do. In other words, get, get active with what I've told you and the God of peace will be with you. So we move from the peace of God, having the peace of God, to having the God of peace with us. And that's really where life is found. Life is found. Heaven on earth is the God of peace being with us. Your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is in heaven. And so if there's issues that you know in your heart that are holding you back, fear, whatever the case, like Lot's wife, wanting to hold on to it, looking back. And you just are in a place, you just say, Lord, to the extent that I understand, I want to give that to you. And let me tell you, a few weeks from now, you might be right back here saying, to the extent I understand, I want to give that to you. Because this is a never-ending process. It's seasonal. But we come to those places with God over a season, everything it's just because of commitments and releasings we've done. Everything's great. And then all of a sudden we come to a place where, and, and there's new releases. So this lifelong change is a process that God wants us to not pull back from. So as I pray this, just grab your heart with it. Father, we don't want to be a monument to the past. We don't want to live according to the past. We don't want to hold on to the past. Lord, we desire your new way, new to us, not new to you. We desire, Lord, to walk with you in the fullness of what you've, you've planned for us and that anticipation of your heart that we would grab hold of it. We want to honor you, Lord, and be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.